You're listening to Point Two Five, written by Rob Morton and Patrick Edwards. You've got to wait another whole hour before I can watch Strictly Come Dancing. Time just goes so slowly. Fed up with waiting for your favourite TV programme to air. So lazy you can't find anything else to do for an hour. Have no friends to talk to. Eating your cat? Well, not anymore. Introducing BBC One Minus One. The perfect way to watch all of your favourite episodes of whatever shite you like an hour before everyone else. But everyone else will also be watching it too, so it really defeats the point. Can't get enough of your favourite episode? Then watch it three times in the same day! Watch it on BBC Minus One, then on BBC One as normal, then tune in to BBC Plus One, and watch it again. Then, actually, watch it on iPlayer forever and ever until the next episode! Out of your local Cretan meeting that unfortunately takes three hours so you miss it all, don't have the internet for iPlayer? Give us a call, and for one fixed fee we will come to your house and reenact the show for you in your own living room. That's right, we really are that desperate. Haven't got a house for them to perform in. Don't have a TV license. Then we're going to get one of our trucks driving round to your house and then we're going to arrest you and then you go to prison because that's definitely what happens when you don't have a TV license. BBC, making the missable unmissable. Thanks for coming in today, Stephen. Where's Carol and the usual HR team? Well, as you know... Jeremy Corbyn has won a landslide victory, very unexpectedly, and due to this change, there has been a slight change to the HR team and the way your pay is going to be calculated. Essentially, the government is now calculating your tax on a personalised scale that is based on your effort and on your need. The only amount they are going to take away in tax is the percentage they think was based on luck rather than any conscious effort on your part. Right. We wouldn't want you being undeservedly benefiting from any good luck you've experienced. Or bad luck. So we're just going to go through this tick list and I'd like you to tell me whether any of the following situations apply to you. Obviously, you are white and male, so we'll just hold that against you as a given. Um, But the first question is whether your parents went to university. Um, No, they didn't. Oh, that's good. Did you attend a fee-paying school? No. (laughs) This is going well. Did your parents... Sorry, I I thought this was about me. I can assure you that this checklist has been devised by experts who know exactly what they are doing. Did your parents read to you at night? No. Are you sure? (laughs) Well, if you count reading the labels off the back of their empty fag packets as... I'll put that down as a yes then. Remember, if you are unsure about anything, don't be afraid to tell us and we will decide how much it counts against you, okay? Can I ask whether you enjoy your job? Um, it's, it's all right, I suppose. All right, good or all right, bad? All right, good. Well, another black mark, I'm afraid. Sorry, why does the fact I like my job count against me? What we are trying to do is make sure the hard-working people of this office all get what they deserve. That's all. I work 70 hours a week. Yeah, but if you think about it, your work isn't actually hard, though, is it? If you work within a square mile of St. Paul's and you don't clean carpets, fix toilets or fulfil a gruelling human resources function, your job doesn't really count. And you did just say it was all right good. Sorry, you're going to have to explain this to me. What has this got to do with my earnings? Surely it is self-evident. On the one hand, if you think your work is hard, it is obvious that you don't have the skills to do it, in which case you are a waste of resources and your salary isn't deserved. On the other hand, if you don't find your work that hard, your salary isn't warranted. Well, 
In which case, what do you think of your work? We think it's fairly priced. Why? Because our salary is less than yours. My salary is based on my ability to supply demand at an agreed price. Yes, an ability derived through a combination of lucky coincidences, which, according to our calculations, means that you can take home a grand total of... Mm, 17.5% of your income. <laughs> That's better than some of the tops you work with. You should be very pleased. This is ridiculous. No, Stephen. This is progress. Hang on, hang on. You said at the start of this conversation that my scale was based on effort and need. I need more than 17.5% of my income. What do you mean? Well, I've got very expensive tastes. Oh, please don't. It's a medical condition. What condition? I've prepared a list of my needs together with a post-tax salary that should just about cover it. This is at least three times the salary you're on now. This is outrageous. As you'll see, I experienced severe reactions to food that isn't foie gras and chateau nerf de pap. Newspaper ink dehydrates my fingers, so I need someone to iron my financial times daily. My feet get sore if I have to walk further than 10 minutes at a time, so I really do need a driver. What does it say at the bottom? Oh yeah, I also need to watch you burn your own children alive for my enjoyment. That's not need. <laughs> yes it is. I need to watch you burn your own children alive. That's an outrageous act, uh, an imposition on others. And what's wrong with that? It infringes our freedom. It violates the sanctity of the individual. Well, if you're not going to burn your children alive, how much are you going to pay to compensate me? How about 50% of your salary? <laughs> That's outrageous. How are you expecting me to live off half my income? I'm not. I'm making you choose between burning your kids or paying for them not to be set on fire. God, who's got expensive tastes now? How about 30%? Your kids are about to be burned to death and you're trying to negotiate with me. You honestly think I'm prepared to negotiate? I need to watch your kids burn to death. I guess we could just work longer to pay for our kids not to be burned. In fact, come to think of it, under the new regime, we wouldn't have to pay any tax. We would be working long hours against our will for a reason we don't like. Unfortunately, you would have to pay nearly all of your extra earnings in tax, as the incentive to work those extra hours derives not from a hard work ethic, but an instinct to protect your own children, I'm afraid. Damn. You got us there. I'll get the paraffin then. Dad, I'm serious. I don't want to. But your mother, your dead mother, would want you to. Think about your brother. Dad, I don't want to. I don't want to be the pilot of Thunderbird 5. But you'll be in space. I hate space! It's only for 18 consecutive months, followed by one week back on Earth in perpetuity for the rest of your life. Well, if it's so important, why doesn't Virgil go? I've already told you. He's got to drive the spaceship that drops a submarine from the sky. Well, what about Gordon? He's got to drive the submarine. Please, Billy, just listen. No, Dad, I won't do it. I want to be a ballet dancer. What the fuck has ballet got to do with it? All your mother ever wanted was you to go out into space and come back for daiquiris and cigarettes by the heat-resistant swimming pool. You're only throwing a dead woman's wish back into a dead woman's face by becoming a ballet dancer. Since you're so keen to talk about mum for once, let's just remember why she left. Your mother? My mom left Tracy Island because you were more interested in saving other people's lives than saving your own marriage. How dare you? It's true. You neglected her ever since you hired Tintin as our babysitter. You like Tintin. She took my virginity, Dad. She took all of our genities. Yeah. But what a looker. Dad, Mum was a looker until she got trapped in the moving heat-resistant swimming pool during her yoga class. It wasn't the same after Brains. Brains did its best to create an exoskeleton for her. It just wasn't practical in the bedroom. Surely you can see that. 
Where's Tintin's supple, milky flesh? Are you not listening, Dad? I'm becoming a ballet dancer, and that's final. 18 months later. You're listening to the Nutcracker Pad de Deux, live from the Albert Hall. This is Christmas on BBC One. Come in, Thunderbird 5. Anything to report? Shut up, Dad, I'm rehearsing. I've told you about this. You've got to listen for cries for help. Not listening, Dad. Billy! I fucking hate you, Dad. You're worse than Mr. Reagan ever was. Coming up on BBC One, we have a thrilling new six-part detective drama about affairs, double-crossing, and build-up. Oh yes, we love the build-up. It's basically our way of making you sit through five hours of poorly scripted drama by being as vague as possible and then waiting until episode six to give away only enough of the story that leaves a pretty implausible cliffhanger at the end for us to do exactly the same in series two. Don't blame us, you're paying for it. But first, since the BBC have unbelievably managed to lose the rights to the Bake Off, in our attempt to try and replace it and see if it will stick and potentially go as viral as implausibly as Bake Off did season, a sneak peek at the Great British Stamp Collecting Off. Oh my goodness, this stamping lark is harder than I thought. Twelve amateur collectors. I've just ripped the Queen's head stamp in half. Is that treason? Oh god, the stamps! They're everywhere! I've got no idea where to start! Twelve drooling weeks. Oh, go on, give it a good lick! My mouth's gone dry! I can't lick! Someone please get me some water! I'm bloody parched! One host with exceedingly poor sexual innuendo stamp puns. Get that tongue right around the back of their head. Whatever you do, remember to stick it on the front and not the back side. Oh, well, you know what they say about stamps and envelopes? No. Uh, something, you know, sticky? No, oh, sex! Bloody stamping sex! Two formidable judges. I've been judging stamp collecting for 20 years and I've not seen a stamp so poorly fixed as that. Do you want to stay in this competition? Well, you better start pulling your tongue out and start licking the stamps. Oi, that's my line. Challenges who will stamp out the week. I can't do this anymore. I mean, look at my EU collector's edition stamp. It just won't stick. How the hell am I meant to arrange those stamps so it makes a picture of the Queen's head? They're all the Queen's head. I'd be utterly ashamed to send that postcard with that stamp design on. You've just ruined a perfectly good picture of Lady Diana. Oh, stop stamping your feet. It's some bloody advice. Oh, that is a thing of beauty. You've certainly put your unique stamp on this one. Look at the perforations. And no soggy envelope. The winner to be crowned Britain's first winner of the Great British Stamp Collector Off. And the winner of a damn good stamping. <laughs> Sorry. The winner of the Great British Stamp Collection Off is... The Great British Stamp Collector Off. Please watch, or just look at your watch for half an hour each week. It's basically the same thing. So... It's all agreed that to show our opposition to the new work policies, none of us are going into work tomorrow. Barry? Uh, yeah, w well... Come on, Barry, look. Shane's not going to work tomorrow, are you, Shane? Mm, I didn't say that exactly. Guys, we've all just agreed we aren't going to work tomorrow. Craig, Craig, the old mate, you're, you're not going to go in, are you? I'm not going anywhere, but... Uh... That's the spirit, Craig. Mate, I'm just going to come out and see what everyone else is thinking. Why don't you just change jobs? Well... Because I have a higher purpose, Jonathan. A purpose to campaign for the greater good. We are here to set minimum working standards. Yeah, well that was obviously the historic reason for unions. No one disputes that. But things have changed. We now have the opportunity to vote for a government that has a democratic mandate to legislate for agreed improvements to working conditions. 
Yeah, but come on, that's so boring. The unions are the only ones to protect the little man. Obviously not the migrant labour that can undercut the rest of us. I I'm thinking the less little. Little man. The, uh, the medium man, who can be assured a guaranteed level of comfort. Luke, if, if you can do your job for less, you should be able to. If you can't, you don't. If you want to affect the national minimum standard, you vote for it. Come on. 50 grand. Oh, here we go again. 50 grand to sit on our asses all day is quite a lot compared to the shit nurses and teachers have to go through. Anyone else think that Jonathan isn't one of us, lads? Anyone else think Jonathan doesn't quite get it? I think someone is forgetting that no one gives a fuck what you think, Jonathan. I think someone is forgetting that I only need 10% of your votes to get what I want anyway. Well, you proved my point exactly. Lads, put him on the tube tracks. Get off me. When we run him over, we can share the PTS payout to spend down the pub tomorrow. I regret to announce that there are major delays on the Victoria line owing to a person falling onto the tracks earlier today. Please continue to wait behind the yellow line and pay exorbitant charges. And now on Fox, Barrage Anderson's landmark series, The Making of the Modern Britain. Throughout the last 30 years, I have met a number of people over a number of pints at the European Parliament canteen in Brussels, Strasbourg, and for the first-class buffet car between the two, and they all agree that the Liberal elite have had it far too easy. In this series, I want to explore the origins of liberalism and how it's finally going to end. Episode 1, The Welfare State. You'll join me in the heart of London, where opposite the remains of the Palace of Westminster stands a statue dedicated to the architect of the welfare state, Nye Bevan, the arch-eugenicist of 20th century Britain. Bevan created an institution whereby taxpayers suddenly became obligated to fund the healthcare of others. In doing so, Bevan was to change the evolutionary path of the human race forever. Of course, the UK had been host to a number of charitable organisations before, but nothing had been achieved at such a scale, nor in a way that had required welfare users to do nothing in return. Never before had the environmental conditions allowed the coexistence of the guilt-ridden and those able to exploit that guilt. Throughout the history of Great Britain, the people have always had to deal with the threat of invasion from the likes of the Romans and the Normans. But never before was it forced to deal with a force as powerful and as malign as the liberal conscience. Unlike anything that came before, this threat didn't come from the air or the sea, or increasingly, the back of a container lorry. You can't, after all, launch an anti-aircraft fire at an idea in the same way we shot the Luftwaffe here in Coventry. To attempt to answer this question, I've come to talk to Professor Urchin, the head of Coventry University's Nationhood Theory Studies. He's an expert, but one whose views actually appear to make sense. We see the first signs of liberalism influencing policy in Britain as early as the start of the 19th century, when the aristocracy could no longer resist the mercantilist demands for political representation. So what you're effectively saying is that we've had enough of these German pricelings taking our taxes, and they knew that if they wanted to keep these new business owners sweet, they would have to start making certain concessions, or otherwise, you know, forget mate. Exactly. In other words, then, liberal guilt is and always has been an idea that came from the elite. Couldn't have put it better myself. Of course, today, we know that the elite have more or less fled Britain from their homeland, where, despite some impressive attempts to come back, they decided to rule us from afar. But how exactly were they able to do that? It's actually strikingly easy to understand. If I empty this hoover full of orange, red and black dyed cigar ash and switch it back on, 
We get a powerful vacuum. Where once it was full of German dust, it was now full of merchandise. In other words, same shit, different day. I'm here at a humble factory unit, once the greatest vehicle of national pride where men, women and children could spend all day together getting their hands dirty. Only that the owners could see that these people were actually quite enjoying themselves. At the forefront of the conspiracy was the factory owner Frederick Engels and his commie mate Marx. Together the perfect embodiment of the liberal conscience. They were German, check. They were elite, check. And they felt guilty about their workers when they were doing just fine, check. They knew more than most that if they were going to mollify these Brits, they were going to have to force them to accept higher wages and improved working conditions. We'll never know what Marx and Engels would have said to Nay Bevan, the person I was talking about at the beginning of this programme but haven't mentioned since, but it would have probably gone something like this. Whatever you do, please encourage a load of Johnny foreigners here with the promise of free food and shelter to force the remaining Brits out of good old factory work altogether. And that's exactly what they did. Next time, we assess the impact of immigration. So what you're saying is that A, we didn't want to fund our old colonies because no one was pulling their weight anymore. B, they made a right hash of it. And so C, we said, all right, forget it. If you really want to come and drive our buses, all this and more on Barrage Anderson's The Making of Modern Britain. That was that the point two five, written and performed by Rob Morton, Patrick Evans, and Kate Graves.